everyone, my name is Jack Rico, and he's Mike Sargent. And he is brown, and I'm black. And this is the Brown and Black Podcast, a show about seeing race in media and entertainment through a brown and black lens. Well, welcome to episode 16 of the Brown and Black Podcast. I hope all of you are having a healthy and happy day. Our guests today are two of the most decorated costume designers in Hollywood, and they happen to be proudly black. Michelle Cole has costume design for In Living Color and is nominated this year for an Emmy for her work in Blackish. Sharon Davis is an Academy Award winning costume designer and this year already won for her nominated wardrobe designs in HBO's Watchmen. So congratulations to them. But before we talk to them, shout out to Oregon, Washington, D.C., High Falls, New York, and Los Angeles for giving us a listen. We appreciate you downloading and streaming the Brown and Black podcast. We also have a new YouTube channel we'd love for you to check out. It's called Brown and Black Podcast and our latest One is an interview that we've done with John Leguizamo and now with Michelle Cole and Sharon Davis. You could see our chat of this podcast on video if you go there. Mike, how has your week been, my brother? Uh, It's been an interesting week. I'll say that. It's an interesting week. I'm coming up on my birthday. Oh, that's right. When is your birthday exactly? It's actually the 21st of September. So you're getting like those birthday jitters, like, oh, man, am I going to throw a party? Am I going to get birthday No, presents? yeah, a pandemic party. I'm going to have everybody <laughs> wear a hazmat suit. No, I, I, I really, for me, birthdays are a time for, because I start thinking about my birthdays at least a month out. It's a time for, it's sort of like New Year's. It's a time to kind of look ahead and look back. It's like, all right, I'm going about to take another trip around the sun. What do I want to <laughs> accomplish you know what i mean so it's that kind of thing i I definitely self-reflective you know and i've been purging getting rid of a lot of stuff so it's it's been that kind of a week for me what about you what's happening in jack rico world since the george floyd event happened i have been nonstop in absorbing as much information about history as i possibly could and can i tell you that it's now starting to depress me because (laughs) our history here in america is so gross so horrific so demoralizing. It's almost like there's nothing good that ever came out of this country when you look at the roots of our history. Well, you know, that's a very, very interesting point is going to lead us into a few of the topics of today. But please continue. No, and and I just feel like, you know, if you listen to our podcast from the very beginning, we were all talking about how sports and culture is so distracting and that we should be doing more reading about history. I think the best thing is when we can all be balanced. So it's not sports Monday through Friday or Monday through Monday, and that's all we talk about. It's more like, let's watch a little bit of sports, let's watch a little bit of movies, but let's also read our history, study a little bit of politics, you know, have conversations, meaningful conversations about how to make our country better. But I just went on one single sort of rabbit hole. And I thought that that should be my reality eternally. You know, I'm demoralized, disillusioned. I, it's almost like I don't want to read another article anymore, man. Why don't we just get into the news so I can talk about exactly what my problem is? Hmm. 
the crusade against American history is toxic propaganda, ideological poison that, if not removed, will dissolve. Pacific bonds that tie us together will destroy our country. We want our sons and daughters to know that they are the citizens of the most exceptional nation in the history of the world. has warped, distorted, and defiled the American story with deceptions, falsehoods, and lies. Students in our universities are inundated with critical race theory. This is a Marxist doctrine holding that America is a wicked and racist nation, that even young children are complicit in oppression, and that our entire society must be radically transformed. Today, I'm also pleased to announce that I will soon sign an executive order establishing a national commission to promote patriotic education. It will be called the 1776 Commission. See, here's the thing. It's interesting what you were saying earlier prior to jumping into this thing, you know, this whole 17... 17- 76 initiative as an antidote to the 1619 project and and all the reasons why he hates it. And touching upon what you said, sounds like you're saying, as opposed to just eating protein, you know, you need to have some vegetables and some balance, variety, yeah, some balance, variety. And I agree with all of that. I I really do. And by the way, Mike, I'm a Democrat. I don't mind saying my or, or admitting or confessing my political leanings. I'm a Democrat. I've always been a Democrat. Now, am I a radical left Democrat? No. I I didn't even think there was another layer to being a Democrat. I thought you were just a Democrat, period. But now there's like four different versions of Democrats, four different versions of Republicans. And I'm like, listen, I am a centrist. I am a rational centrist, which means that I understand that Democrats were also slave owners back in 1776. Lincoln was Republican. So what the parties represent, like you said, what they stand for, do you just follow him because he's part of your party? How do you cross party lines? And if you do, then are you like Jehovah's Witness where you like excommunicated? Are you, you know, you've that's it. I mean, let's face it. Trump was a Democrat till it didn't make sense for him to be a Democrat. Because he's an individualist who has a self-interest agenda about the Donald Trump brand. And I get that, you know, in this country, you can do whatever the hell it is that you want. But when it starts affecting a mass amount of people, then that's when the complaining starts. Look, I think that with Hispanics and myself, we don't want to just be labeled Hispanic. There's there's a new emergence, a new rise in Latinos that hate the word Hispanic because it whiteifies them too much. I just want to cherry pick all the best rationales and create you know, something sensible that I believe is right for me. I think that the positive side of that is that you know how to think critically and you'll do your research and, you know, you'll in a minute go down the rabbit hole. But I don't think everybody 
has that same capacity. We talked about confirmation bias on previous shows. Confirmation bias allows you to just look at things that support what you already believe. So if you already believe something, this is going to come into large play with the election. If you already believe something, no matter what somebody says, you're just going to dismiss it. You're going to dismiss it because that conflicts with what you already believe. And about dismissing, it's something that Trump uh, this week went on record in saying that the 1619 Project in particular, the one that the New York Times did with Nicole Hannah-Jones, who won a Pulitzer Prize for it, where she exhorted to many of us to kind of look at the year 1619, not necessarily as the founding of America, but as the initiation of the galvanization of economy, wealth, and power for the United States, that it really began with slavery and not necessarily when they defeated the British in 1776 and the Constitution was founded, etc. And what Donald Trump wants to do is he wants to sort of dismiss that for something he calls patriotic education, which the way I interpreted that was white supremacist education. Boom. The reason that I went into this rabbit hole on history since the post-George Floyd moment was because I felt like a lot of the information I was listening to to me was new. Even though I went to public schools and went to history classes, obviously, now that I've gotten, I've caught up, I think that learning what I learned in America, which is a very patriotic way of looking at America and mostly white America, but combining it with the 1619 Project now gives me a full bigger picture that this country was never a perfect country. The thing about the 1619 Project and what it's been criticized for, and ironically, he's calling his initiative the 1776 Commission. After the 1619 Project came out, a group of black academics came out with something called 1776 Unites. I saw that, and it's mostly black people. Their perspective, the reason they're against the 1619 Project is because the 1619 Project puts the lens of slavery on everything about America. And similar to the documentary 13th, it really gives you a different context to view a lot of the things that are happening. These scholars feel that that's wrong. They feel that what you are experiencing, that how you take enough of this information, that if you're black, you're leading this bleak, sad life. And and it's, you know, like you said, we're just going in circles and it's just this unending circle of awfulness that that's going on here in America and that has always gone on. And they're saying, no, their position is that this is the wrong way to go. It's too negative and it posits this negative image. Now, I'm somewhere in between because I think that what Nicole Hannah-Jones did here specifically with the 1619 Project, and she says this from the outset, this is not a history lesson. This is based on memory and memory is important. How many times in your life have you had something that you've remembered a certain way and then you run into somebody who was there and they tell you stuff that you didn't even remember? Now, does that mean you were wrong in your memory? Does that mean they have a better memory? Or now, once you learn it, does it change your perspective? Does it change your perspective and broaden it? So I agree with you. I think 1619 Project is absolutely valid, and you definitely should see it. But I also understand where the 1776 people are coming from, because when we were in school, ideally, when you learned, whether it was about black history or Latin history, you learn a little bit, but hopefully you get balanced. You learn that there were both slaves and and Harriet Tubman's, but there were also abolitionists. As an affluent person is a very different America than the America I experience as a black or Latino person or as a person of color in general or someone who's not affluent. It's a very different America. So 
I think context is important. I think understanding from both sides, I think it has to be balanced. You have to understand the good and the bad of our history to understand where we are. We spoke with John Leguizamo and with Kevin Wilmot, and we talked about the importance of history by changing it. And, and, and what was it Wilmot said? You know, the term I always use is, I think, in American life, the history owns us. We don't own the history. We've got we to find a way to own this history and, not, and, not, and to be able to tell these stories, not in a way that shuts people down. And because then we just continue to recycle and repeat this history over and over and over again because the history owns us. We don't own the history. And part of owning that history is giving it to people uncut. You need to know how it really happened. You need to know it unfiltered and uncensored so that you get the full impact of why we have had this history in this country that we've lived in. That's super important, in my opinion, because it does own us. And if we try and act like it didn't happen, I think that's the real danger. You sent me an article called Why a Third of Latinos Still Plan to Vote for Trump. It's on Medium. It's written by Andrea Gonzalez Ramirez. You know, it's interesting because you're talking about 1776 Unites, which is African-Americans speaking not fully against the 1619 Project, but the patriotic way of looking at America is also not wrong either. It's based on facts, except that they swept under the rug the ugliness and they just kept the prettiness, you know, the, the, the American patriotism that we've been selling throughout the world. But the same thing happens with Latinos, Mike. Hispanics for Trump. And in this article you, uh, that, you, that you shared with me, there is a woman by the name of Mindy Garcia. And Mindy Garcia used to be a Democrat. She's a Mexican-American. And used to be a Democrat in the 80s and 90s. And now she is a Republican and a Latina for Trump. And one of the things that she talks about in the article is the distrust that she has had against the Democratic Party. And if we, we've talked about this in previous episodes. And what she's saying is, I've been under the Democratic influence and they've screwed me over. They've screwed me over. Obama didn't do anything for me. The Clintons didn't do anything for me. Like Trump got me. And when she was asked about, well, what about all the rhetoric about Mexicans? You're a Mexican. She's like, yeah. It's true. And you know what? I have a soundbite of a woman that I spoke to back in the day on the Highly Relevant Podcast, back in 2016, why she felt that she was also against Mexicans coming into this country. I feel no attachment to Mexico. It's not my country. Uh, The people from over there don't affect my way of life. I'm an American, and I I want what's best for my country. And that basically sums up a lot of the way Chicanos and Mexican-Americans feel about Mexico and their history and their culture and their worldview. There is a sense that you want to get away from your Latino political roots and you want to come here and kind of have a a, a fresh start, so to speak. And that's what I think the sentiment a lot of these Latino Republicans are. But all right, I have to ask you, because maybe I'm missing something here. If you come from a country where the corruption is blatant and you go to another country, especially now with Trump, I don't think there's ever been a president who is as blatant and obvious 
letting you know what he stands for. Those those people who were standing on on the their lawn with guns against the Black Lives Matter. He had them speak at the Republican National Convention. So I don't understand seeing that. If you are have any consciousness, how can you then turn around and say, "Yeah, this is better than what I left." I'm definitely going to vote for this guy. Because of history, this is an anomaly, Mike. I think we can all agree that Trump is an anomaly. That's not necessarily the consistency of the of the presidents we've had here. Remember, Ronald Reagan in his first term gave amnesty to 3 million Latinos that were undocumented. That's huge compared to Obama, who was called the chief deporting officer. And deported more Latinos than any other president in history. You go all the way back to Latinos con Eisenhower. You go back to George Bush Jr.'s 40% Latino vote. So you've been seeing a history of about 30% of the population of Latinos in this country voting Republican. And there's nothing you can do about it. This one's an anomaly where I think they stand more for the party historically than they do for the candidate. There are 32 million registered Latino voters, Mm -hmm. okay, which is half the population because it's like 60 million. From what you're telling me, they're going to vote Trump and Trump's going to win. That's what you're telling me. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you, man. And and, and it kills me to say that. But, you know, when you look at like the numbers, Latinos have benefited tremendously under the Trump administration before coronavirus hit. I mean, if you look at economically speaking, Latinos unemployment rates were at a record low. Median household incomes were increasing and a rising number of Latinos became homeowners. Mike, what is it that most Hispanics, Latinos that you've heard of that are immigrants coming into this country want to do? They want to make money. They don't come here for religious, you know, purging of their country. This isn't the issue that happened with Europeans when they lived in Britain, in Spain. They're not leaving a monarchy behind. They want money. Money, money, so they can take that money and live a better life, which is what that movie, A Better Life, was about that Demi Ambichi got nominated for. That's why you take the odd, crappy jobs, the service jobs, the ones that white Americans won't take, so they can make enough money, make a good living for themselves and their family, and then send a lot of that money back to their home country, or with the idea that they're going to take all those dollars and move back themselves as a rich person. That's been the history of the storyline of immigrants coming into this country from its modern inception. Listen, I can't agree with you more. I feel that the difference between the Democrats and Republicans, because I think they're equally corrupt, I think that the Republicans are just more blatantly racist yes, than the Democrats. Absolutely. I think that that's the biggest difference. And yes, do, do I think, I mean, and we could have a clearly a whole other show on this, but I mean, let's face it, police brutality was huge during Obama's time. It was happening all the time. Okay. You look at all the major, major things. We've, we had a lot happen in the last year, but there was a lot. And if police reform did not happen under Obama's watch, I do not see it happening under Trump or Biden or anybody. Listen, the plight of the Hispanic is a very complicated one. And I understand why Latinos could vote for Trump. I just think they're misguided. You know, when you tell them the facts, they don't want to hear it. We had the worst modern attack in history when that kid came to El Paso, Texas at Walmart and shot 21 Latinos. Mm. Nothing compares to the pain that African-Americans have had in this country. We've chosen to come into this country. Blacks did it. 
So when you come start comparing the Latino life and the Latino history compared to the black history, Latinos are like, man, thank God I don't have to go through what black people go through in this country. Do you know that 53% of Latinos identify as white in this country? Yeah, I think this also brings up another issue that that's a large issue, and I hope we can get to explore more here. You know, we do this show out of a desire for unity between black and brown, but there still has got to be a certain amount of unity within the black and within the brown. Even this division on the 1619 project for the 1776 United, and clearly Latinos are divided on Trump and Goya, things like that. And what do these things mean? What do they represent? And how do they acknowledge me? I have always been aware but doing this show with you and the, and the shows we've done and the conversations we've had i realize how stark the invisibility of the latino is even though you guys control so much of the economy and the political power trump won because of 29 percent of the latino vote there's only eight percent of black voters that are republican mike You're exactly right. This invisibility factor, that's the fishy part about this whole thing. Neither Democrats or Republicans really see that we need to be attended to. And it's kind of like what John Leguizamo did with the Emmys when he said, you know what? I'm happy for all the African-Americans that are being nominated. But the fact that not one single Latino is nominated at the Emmys, I'm boycotting. Well, I have to say, uh, and since we're leading into the Emmys, uh, I totally agree with what John said on our show about Latinos for Trump. Can you please explain Ted Cruz? <laughs> That's Rubio. like Roach's Parade. Wait. That's all I get. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find, that, I find Repu- Latin Republicans for Trump disgusting. I mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't mind Latin Republicans, but for Trump, who said horrible things about my Mexican brothers and sisters who try to take away the bilingual government page, who's limiting the immigration of legal immigrants to our country only from Latin and black countries, who, who threw paper towels at, at Puerto Ricans who were at, uh, in dire straits and then jokingly said, I, should, I want to sell Puerto Rico. Disgusting. I mean, how can you... How can you look at yourself in the mirror and call yourself Latin and go, I don't care about my other Latin brothers and I just care about me. Nah, that doesn't, that doesn't, no, no. You can be Republican, but you can't be for Trump. You just can't. We're having this conversation. We're going into uh, election, we're heavily in election season. And this is the beginning of Hispanic, National Hispanic Heritage Week, which sounds dated in itself. Uh, you know, that's from the September 15th to October 15th. And it started as a week until 1989. They changed it. I, I want to ask you, what do you do during a month like this? And or do you do anything different? Do you do anything to celebrate National Hispanic Heritage? Does it have any meaning or significance to you? To, to me, it means nothing. It's it's pandering, Mike. It's become, it's been claimed by corporate America. Check this out. There have been no Latinx performers among the lead and supporting Emmy nominees for comedy or drama series in the last six years. So blacks are getting their due. Women are getting their due. But we're not getting our due. And we're 18% of the population. We're the largest voting block for political power in this country. We give $1.7 trillion in spending power for capitalism in this country. 
Like, why is all that dismissed when it comes to media? Go look at our morning shows. There's not one single Hispanic on it. We don't have a Latino movie star. There are no Latinx shows on broadcast television. So how do I, you know, how, how do I feel great about Hispanic Heritage Month? It's bullshit to me. By the way, so what do you think about the Emmys this year, Mike? I mean, it is it is mostly the African-American Emmys. What I want to see out of this Emmys is what I want to see out of the industry in general. What I like about this year, of course, as an African-American, as a person of color, as a black person, as a as someone who who is both a consumer and creator of content, is I'm, I'm so happy. I mean, every day I'm reading new executive, new overall deals, somebody else signs a deal. And, you know, and, and I love the fact that a show like Watchmen, and of course, that science fiction, you know, there have been three shows that have been on uh this show watchmen uh the um lovecraft country uh and and there's a third show um uh the umbrella academy all taking place in america's past and highlighting you know the racism and and what what battles were fought to come to where we are now i think that's important i think these kinds of stories i would like to see like you say and I don't remember it is who said it to us. I would like to see that this is all part of the, you know, there's a phrase they used to use that they don't use anymore. You remember this? America is a melting pot. Remember that? You don't hear, you don't, you don't, you don't hear that. You don't hear that bandied. About well, that anymore. actually existed. <laughs> so I would like to see black and brown lives matter. Yes. Because they have to. Yes. They, yes. Yes. Know, yes. B-A-B-L-M. Okay. Yes, Mike, I love this. That's the that's that's the next movement. That's the next movement because to me, not only does it matter, but you know, our history and what we've done for this country to create this country, to create the culture, a a culture that's only a couple hundred years old, it it would be it would America. I don't know what America would be without the contributions of blacks and Latinos. I don't know. It would not be America. And building off of what you're saying, Mike, we have two incredible guests, Sharon Davis and Michelle Cole, who are nominated for Emmys. Sharon already won. Uh, Michelle, we're waiting for. And we talked about what how much race has played in costume designing in television and in film. What else did you like about the interview? Well, there are so many things I liked about the interview because they're artists. Right away, you want to go watch these shows that they've done just to see what they're doing. All the things that are subtle, that are are textural to the characters, that are important. That's what costuming is. It's helped tell the story and make it more believable. And the clothes you wear say so much about who you are. Yeah. You know, I didn't know that they... They really create wardrobe for the story. You should be able to mute your television or mute the the projection screen and just know what's going on just because of the costume designs. I also asked her about the differences between costume designing for a white character as opposed to a black character. And uh, we also talked about some advice for young women coming into this business. It's not what it used to be back then. Very true. As Spock on Star Trek would say, fascinating. On a 
our show today. We are thrilled to have two of the nominees, Michelle Cole and Sharon Davis. Michelle is nominated this year for Outstanding Contemporary Costumes for ABC's Blackish. This is the third year in a row that she's nominated, and this is also her seventh overall Emmy nomination in her career. Sharon Davis is a two-time Academy Award and Emmy-nominated costume designer who was nominated this year for Outstanding Fantasy Sci-Fi Costumes for HBO's Watchmen. Sharon, Michelle, thank you very much for being on the Brown and Black podcast. Thank you for having us. We're very thanks so much. My question to you both is how did you first get into this and what was your initial interest in costume, clothing, fashion? I, I started, I loved uh, being a costume designer. I started really young, like 13, 14. I loved to sew. So my parents are from the South. And my grandmother had a sewing, those old sewing machines, so I played with a lot, a lot with that. And then my parents, we moved, we came to Los Angeles, and my dad loved old movies. That was his thing. He loved old movies. So I saw My Fair Lady with Audrey Hepburn, and I was probably about 16. And then when I came out of the theater, I looked over at my dad, and I said, I want to be a costume designer. Wow. And, and I also wanted to be a period costume designer. And my dad was an educator, so he, he was that type of parent that he really, um, he really encouraged us encourage all of us kids to do what we wanted to do so I was really lucky to have a dad that said okay let's start sewing he put me in classes and that's when home ec was still in um, high school so I did all the the, um, the theater in high school and started there and um, and I got to, went to college in Kentucky and I graduated from from Kentucky with a degree in costume designing so that's how so I knew pretty early what I wanted to do I was pretty lucky um, I did go <laughs> I did major in theater arts, but I was an acting major. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but I always loved making my own clothes. So, you know, that just, and I, and I, before I went to college, I was a background vocalist. My father was in the Air Force and we lived in Japan. And oh, we wow. Were, like all black group called Buddha. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> He was like, I don't know, they found me, they just grabbed me. Could you like sing? Can you sing? I go, kind of, that's good enough. Well, so, so anyway, I started, and I started doing the costumes with them. And then we moved back to the United States and I started um, the theater program. And I don't know, eventually it ended up being, my acting would be through designing clothes. <laughs> I want to know exactly why costume designing is so crucial to what you do in television, film, or whatever medium. I do mostly film and sci-fi, and Michelle does basically amazing contemporary and TV. So each of these platforms have different mm -hmm. scenarios of what the clothes do. And for me, the clothes are... And Michelle, we both help develop the characters, so... If you turned off your sound, you, you should be able to understand what mood or where they're going by what they have on. For me, I'd like to make sure the clothes uh, don't jump off the screen on film because you want the story should be bigger. But the clothes have to. It has to mesh with the character, you know, and they tell a story. You know, if the person's depressed or, you know, it, 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 they will tell a story all on their own if you were to turn the sound down. Sharon's right. I think that part of it is, too, is the actors feel it. I mean, they, they feel the part. And so I think when you're doing whether you're doing contemporary or any or sci-fi or anything, period, is that the actors, I mean, they really get into wardrobe. People don't realize how actors 
I mean, I've known where some actors even needed to have, and I can't mention their names, but it was some actors that I've talked to different designers. They even need the underwear for like their, you know, scenes that are period movies or things like that. It is a visual tool for most people. I think, you know, when you watch all these movies and all of our movies is that it does tell a story. And I think the actor really feels the part. Um, and we're helping that actor develop who they are, who they are as a character. Yeah, you know, I mean, like during Ray, when we had Jamie Foxx, who actually looks nothing like Ray Charles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by the time he was transformed, you know, just by the hair and the glasses. And, and the, the movement, way yeah. Movements, you know, he became Ray. And he just, every time, he was just so excited to put on these, these suits. He had never really done a big period show. And um, everyone just, when that was like my, really, that's my second biggest period show, but everyone was just so excited, all the actors, just to turn into a completely different human being. It's, it's like they could totally drop their personal self and go into a time they've never really lived and start and really develop their char- character uh, much easier. Clearly, um, Sharon, I'm, you know, I'm feeling you because I'm a sci-fi person, okay? But... Um, <laughs> Past, present, future, you know, each one of them, there's research you have to do for the past, there's research you have to do for the present, and then there's research you have to do to maybe anticipate what the future is going to be like. Can you talk about maybe the difference in working contemporary, past, future, and what your experiences have been a little bit? Uh, (laughs) um, Each period, each type of costume, I mean, contemporary, futuristic, period. I mean, they all have their own certain challenges. I, I, for instance, really try to, uh, um, contemporary is, contemporary is not my wheelhouse. (laughs) So I really try to avoid it. I love sci-fi. I mean, that's my favorite. And the next would be period, but sci-fi is so challenging because I mean, you really have to do, first of all, you're trying to create a world that's really new to everybody. But you don't want to, you, you don't want it, you want it to be fresh. So you really have to do a lot of research and look at a lot of science fiction shows, which is not a problem. But uh, you, um, I never want to, I don't want to push it. I don't want to get too crazy looking because if you go through the, our own history, we've never, we don't change that much for what we really wear. You know, we may put it on a different way or maybe different fabrics it kind of comes back like the seventies will come back and just be a little transformed in a different way. But I personally, you know, like, like for instance, I did Looper and I did Watchmen and both of those I didn't for Looper. I mixed 1940s with 1980s and combined them. Oh, wow. Nice. Seventies with contemporary and combined that for the extras. And then we did a, um, a flavor of Vietnam because that was a the 51st state and Watchmen. So it's just, you, you get so much material to be creative with in futuristic world to me. You know, you have so, you have a great big, you know, group of people who have all these great ideas. And then they, they, um, we just get together and we start creating, we, you know, you get this script with nothing there and then you, you start creating a new world. So it's very exciting. We're 22 minutes. So I have to catch audience within 22 minutes and our show is loaded with changes. 
Um, Dre usually changes, Anthony Anderson usually changes about 10 times a show, so does Tracy's character. And so you're changing clothes like every other minute. People don't realize like how fast it moves. And most of my research comes from social media. It's coming from like being on the streets and just watching people. Um, I love to travel. I love museums. So I like Sharon, you draw from all kinds of different people. You, um, I have I have 10 great assistants that come from different areas. So they bring something to the table as well. So the research is kind of and sometimes it's in your head. You know, I'm a type of person in the middle of the night. I'll start uh, making notes like two and three o'clock in the morning and I'll start figuring it out um, because I never thought I was going to be a contemporary costume designer. I love period. So since I went to theater school, I mean, went to theater and studied theater, Sharon always says I have a way of m merging all of this together. So, and I never thought about it until she said it. She said that you have a way of, your theater is actually in it, in, in all of your work. So I, I guess she's right. I guess she's right. Is it different to do costume designing for a white character than it is for a black character? No. Well, I, I, well, no, but it is a little bit. I mean, you know, this is for, for blackish. It's blackish. You know, Kenya Barris, Anthony Anderson created, you know, they created the show. So and they're, you know, Gucci. I mean, everything, you don't get a lot of that on white shows. I mean, you don't, you know, so I think that our flavor is completely different than um, than maybe the that type of, you know, that type of show. It's so we we step out of the box culturally, you know, so ours is a little louder, a little more color where I have done white shows, whatever we want to call it, white shows. But I have done other shows where it is a little cleaner. It's a little simple, you know, so it is. So they're. There is some difference. Yes, there is some difference. But, you know, it's it's character, like Sharon says, it's character driven. So it's a different culture, both different cultures. Yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> she, did put Regina, she put Regina King in a leather skirt. She sure did. Let me yeah. ask. So that's, a little, that's a little culture in that leather skirt there, Sharon. Oh, yeah, okay. But Sister Knight is definitely, you know, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but sister knight's her name what do you want <laughs> right exactly exactly well, i designed that costume and nobody was hired yet well when i got the job and they all sat around they said well we really would love to see like a cat suit and i thought lord a sister in a cat suit? i don't think so <laughs> i can't i can't even see that now like I attention would be not on you know her character but just on her body the whole time so mm -hmm. I just, just said you know I'm just gonna put a skirt that but it looks like a cape but a skirt I mean I feverishly worked weeks on that costume with no fear I was just fearless I thought I'm gonna do what I want to do and then I'm gonna do this amazing concept work and I'm gonna just present it to the showrunner and he just was so impressed that was my first thing I showed, and he loved it. He loved it. And it's sometimes scary when they're not really when they ask for one thing, and you kind of. I mean, there's like a cat suit there, but <laughs> you know, it was early, and I thought, you know, I like to show the hardest um, clothing first. So if they don't like it, I have time to re, you know, reorganize my thoughts and uh, illustrate it again and again. And show that I'm not afraid to wait. You know, that's a big problem, isn't it, Michelle? When people, costume designers have fear and they're afraid to. Yes. 
they're afraid they're going to hear no and they don't have anything. <laughs> I, I think that she's, I love the word that, I love the word that Sharon used is I think that's what we, uh, that's what we have in common and the other couple other our friends as well is that you have to be fearless and you have to have the confidence and, and these de- executive producers are hiring us for a reason, you know, um, because you are, you do step out of that box. So, you know, our little group of designer friends that we have, I think that's what we do have in common is, is that you do have to be fearless. Um, you have to trust yourself, trust your instincts. And I think that we, and, if, and then like she said, if they say no, but at least you stretched out, you know, you stretched out and then you can kind of like bring it back, you know, bring it back. But they kind of, I think most of, they hire us because they know that we do that. So we're going to go whatever Sharon does with her producer. And she has this, a lot of producers that she works with. And I have the same producers I work with. So that's the reason why you kind of get hired. I want to ask you both a little bit about your journey, especially as women of color in this business. Um, you know, now I think it's a no brainer to hire either of you. You're fantastic. You, you know, award winning, nominated. But early on, I want to know what was it like and did your race really play much of a role in terms of either the opportunity because of a black filmmaker or a lack of opportunity? And then where we are today, what what are you guys doing maybe to help broaden or diversify that audience? I mean, working on a show like Blackish, I'm assuming, and even Watchmen, I'm assuming there are a lot of things that are diverse, but that probably hasn't always been the case. Or do we start on that one? That's a loaded question. The same age, and we are both baby boomers. So we are we are fearless. I mean, nothing. You can't. You can tell me I can't do something, mm-hmm. and in my head, I'm like, you'll see, you'll see. <laughs> and that I've been like this since I've been, I don't know, a teenager. Like, so, oh well, no, it's not. I'm just. I never even look at it like a race problem. I just look at it. Oh, you wait. Oh, you just wait. (laughs) So it was hard getting in the door a little bit, but I don't know if it was so much a race problem or inexperience. For me, I think we, uh, because we all started up together in in this. And I think that I did mostly black shows, you know, uh, in Living Color, Martin Lawrence, uh, Bernie Mac. And so it was, it took me about 20 years to cross crossover I call it the crossover and to work on a major to work on a major uh, network and and when you think about and I would go up for my interviews and I would I would get where I, people would say the producer said well we don't think she can dress the middle-class family or we don't think that she can do this and then it took two white executive producers for NBC I had to really go in and really sell this look and, and did drawings and everything and I got basically hired on the spot Wow. And, Yes, but it took 20 years to do that, and it was a, a white producer, executive producer, that got me the interview. And so he didn't tell them I was black because he didn't think he had to. So I came in, and boom, I, I, was, I, was, I was hired on my talent. You know, so, um, and then that led me into NBC, ABC, and all the major networks. But it did take a, it did take a minute to cross over. And, uh, but I'm so grateful for the, ver- the first 20 years of my career because it gave me the confidence. My team is so loud right now. <laughs> Look at them. You guys are loud. <laughs> did both of you ever have any interest in going into magazines like Vogue or Harper's Bazaar? Fashion design and costume yes. design is so different. I'm, you know, I, um, I don't know about you, Michelle. I've never 
barely even still look at them. I, I, I can't even imagine being a person of color trying to get into that fashion world. What are know? the key differences there for those that might not know? Well, like I said, I'm doing science fiction and period, which are not really, Vogue's not going to be that interested in me. (laughs) Um, And they are really film or TV driven. They're, they're about entertaining an audience. We're like, but like Michelle's stuff should be in Vogue because she's done this amazing job. And I think she is that kind of designer. I think her look, she, she wasn't trying to do to get into fashion, no. but she created a very original concept of fashion. But I'm sure that that world is really, that world is hard for anyone. It's worse than this one. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty, pretty challenging. Um, it's a different, I mean, costume designing, I mean, it's, it, you're telling a story. And I'm sure you're telling the story be, being a stylist or a fashion designer. Um, we look at runway shows all the time. Stanley Hudson is my, who's a, a runner-up for Project Runway. He's my assistant. And we watch fashion shows all the time, and we're just like, oh, my God, it's so beautiful. But there's an art to that, you know, where they do their runway. You know, it takes a year to, to do that. And so their production is just as big as our production. But it is a big difference. I mean, they're telling their story, but we're character-driven, I think. I mean, we're very character-driven. It's, it's based on, we're, we're expressing someone's feelings, like how Tracy Ellis Ross feels, or like how Anthony Anderson feels. So we're trying to express our character's feelings through their clothes. You know, like, does that make sense? To, I mean, does that make sense? I'm doing short stories. You know, I'm just constantly getting a, a, a blank palette, and I get to recreate a whole other world each time I get a, a film or... Um, a show. It's just, it's a really different. I mean, I'm going back to something you said about the difference between a predominantly white film. Mm-hmm. Usually my deal is this. I started, my first film was an all white cast. It was called Equinox. Alan Rudolph hired me in the, uh, he, it was 92, 1992. It was Matthew Modine and, Mar- and Marissa Tomei, but he, he is so out there. I mean, he had the most amazing, diverse crew. We had like a Japanese mixer, sound mixer. We had a Latina boom. Everyone, he had every race you can think of doing things you've never had. I, it was my first film, so I didn't know that that was not really normal. <laughs> I was so excited to think, oh, this is going to be such a great journey. It's always diverse. Seriously, I didn't feel, it was just a very, he's a very creative, he's an art house director. Mm. Well, once again, he's extremely creative. I didn't feel. I, 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 I mean, think the difference. The, the color palette is different. I I must say. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would never use really bright colors. I'll use jewel tones, but I would never. I'm not a. I don't use bright colors that much unless I did like the clumps. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I would say Michelle's right. It's it's a little more simpler. Like there's not that much jewelry and mm-hmm. you know, a lot more tailored. Jill, mm-hmm. you know, the designers are different. Mm-hmm. The designers are very different. Yeah, like, it's a different. It's a different. <laughs> it's very, very, very but it different. It doesn't take much for you to figure. It. You look at the person. You look at the actor coming in when you're doing a contemporary, and you look at what the role is. And you can somehow merge what designer is going to make her feel like that role. You know, you, you, we have like a file of all these designers in our head. 
Mm-hmm. And we can look at somebody and go, okay, they can't. Mm, right. She does not work on her. She's a Jill Sander girl or she's a product girl. You know, right. we kind of know it mm-hmm. just by looking now. Mm-hmm. But then we've been around forever. And it's just like black is just, you know, upper, you know, rich family that flies first class and educated. And, you know, and Jennifer, Jennifer Lewis is the mother, you know, and she's a little, little crazy. So we, we tell a story. I mean, we have 22 minutes to tell a story, you know, and, and we have five days. So we're up and running. It's, and we're at work at six o'clock, you know, call time for actors at 515 and hair and makeup. So it's, it's a, you know, it's a grind to do 20. And like Anthony Anderson says, it's a grind for 24, 22, 24 shows a season. That's nine months, you know, so it's, it's, in, it's intense. We do it. We, um, we have our production meetings, concept meetings. So ours is like, we have a fashion show every week. We get our script Monday, boom, we're done by Friday. We start the next show, boom. It's, it just keeps going and going and going. So there's, a, there's this pace that you just, you jump on this train um, and we're, so we're doing like almost 178 outfits to 100 outfits per week on our show um, with all the extras and things. Look at she <laughs> She's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> She's like, uh-uh. So that's the difference in comedy versus like a drama um, comedy. We do five days and it's, it's up and running. So it's, it's a pace and it's something I love to do. I'm not a feature girl, so I love that her... And our crew does, they do their features. And I, I'm, I love being at the well, race on Friday. Westworld. Huh? Westworld. I did yeah. Westworld. I stayed all nine months. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's wow. A long, it's a long season and people don't realize like it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to do and you're up and you're, you know, you may have a hiatus, but you're working during your hiatuses. So it's not, it's nonstop for us. I mean, I was very excited to get the job, but I was thinking, it was the second season. I thought, oh, I can do this Western stuff, you know, no problem. <laughs> I get the book and it says India, uh, Japan, and uh, I'm like, what? Wait, what happened to the Western stuff? So we went everywhere the second season, and it was just nonstop. Yeah, nonstop. 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 Samurai yeah. world. You know, it's just crazy. But it was and- and it's like when you're like she's on location, so she has to pack and do and get carts and things. And everybody thinks your your life is very glamorous. It's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not. I mean, it's a lot of physical. There's a lot of physical work on top of it. A lot of executive producers. A lot of it. I mean, you see my board behind me. I'm at Blackish, so it's you're um, you're constantly going to the executive producers. You're getting approvals. You, it it doesn't stop all day. It's nonstop all day. So you have to be in a lot of places all day long. At this point, are, do you have any like favorite periods in time for fashion or, or favorite countries for fashion? You go, wow, what they're wearing there. Like, I wish that were what we wore today. Anything personal favorites? I love the 40s and 50s. Yeah. Me too. I love it. I love it. Especially, I mean, both coasts, the East Coast is better. Yes. Just has What's the difference between East Coast 40s and West Coast 40s? West Coast is definitely uh, a little more lax. It's always had its own flavor, a kind of a beachwear look. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have the same clothes, but mm, they wear them a little differently. Mm-hmm. But I still love, I love the 40s and the 50s. Mm-hmm. I don't like the 60s. 
And then, you know, in the 70s, if it wasn't polyester, it could be fine. The Harlem Renaissance area, um, the Ralph Lauren, the 40s and the 50s, the men's suits and just the women's Dior, yeah. I mean, all of that. I, mean, the I love all the... Beautiful. The details, the brooches. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just, to, to, nowadays they look quite uncomfortable, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Nylons and heels and men yeah. with trousers, little suspenders holding up their socks. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but the baggy pants, I mean, men's clothes always look comfortable per se, though. Mm -hmm. They never really, except for the new suit. Audrey Hepburn, it's all, I mean, it's all that, cat. I mean, all the, the movie Stormy and all those movies in the 40s and the 50s were just, you know, that's probably one of my favorite pieces, yeah. too. I think that's yeah. my favorite. Oh, mm -hmm. the gowns and, like, way men, especially way men dress, you know. Um, but, yeah. Mm -hmm. well, we probably have to dress for the next interview we do. With <laughs> um, my last question, ladies, is uh, Sharon, you had talked that uh, you probably can't find anything that Michelle does uh, anywhere on any rack of any store. Uh, I'm assuming the same thing for you, but why have you both not created your own stores where you can create <laughs> your own designs to sell like a Michelle Cole label or a Sharon Davis label? Uh, so many people love that sci-fi look today. Cosplay is huge as a subculture for comic cons uh, and people who love science fiction. Um, any thoughts of ever having done that or maybe doing it uh, after, after your jobs? Oh, God. It's, it's like we're, we're ready to be Yeah. <laughs> 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 like, uh, that like another project. That sounds like another project. Four years ago, someone asked me to do a line with them, mm -hmm. a plus size women's line that was kind of, was kind of Japanese kotori, you know, a little sci-fi looking. And I did, and I ran with it. And then they just kind of, you know, they never never followed through. Oh. I mean, they paid me what they paid, and then I guess they really didn't have the financing. I don't <laughs> understand the fashion world that way, that much, but we illustrated this whole amazing book. And I got to say, it was really fun. I mean, too bad it never happened, but, you know, my deal was I would do this, and then I could walk away. Right. They paid a flat fee, and then I wouldn't have to deal with the marketing. So it was fun. It was fun, but I can see how hard it is yeah. to start a run. I mean, to get fabric and to get a job or it's just ugh, right now. I mean, the fashion world's really hurting. Yeah. Yeah. And when yeah. I was doing it, living color. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Michelle. Oh, I would say when I was doing in living color, the fly girls were, you know, was the big thing. And Jennifer Lopez was really, I mean, I can see where she is right now, why she is where she is right now. But she was like Michelle because she was great at marketing and she was like 18. She was like, Michelle, you should do a, a fly girls line. And I'm like, I got 30 costumes to build, you know, and I'm living color. <laughs> and you can't, you know, and she was like, we should do a makeup line. I mean, you know, she was always so creative thinking. And that's just how, I mean, she was great at merchandising. But it's like Sharon said, it's so much work. It's so much work. And, and I think we're built to be storytellers. That's now, now, you know, Ruth Carter did a line. She did it for... Yeah, H&M. H &M. Mm -hmm. 
So I don't know if it was, um, I didn't have a look, but I don't know if it was Black Panther oriented. I don't, I, did you see it, Michelle? No, I did not. I did not, but I'm very proud of her. I mean, she yeah. did it. That's a big thing. That's She's a- great at that. She's great at marketing. She's obviously, everyone knows she's a household word. Yeah. She's really great at making sure she's known. Me yeah. and Michelle, we run away and go <laughs> and we get our time off. They're like, where's the beach? no roof is part of our pack our trailblazer pack and and francine jameson so it's a it's a nice crowd squad it's the squad it is it's a nice squad to be in and we're we're proud of each other and there's we have a great time together so we're each other's cheerleaders so that's a great thing right now michelle and i are on a few boards with younger yes people of color um costume designer diversity boards yeah and mm-hmm. I, I must say that the most challenging thing is um the age difference <laughs> why is that I, I actually looked up the baby boomers versus millennials and gen y and we're just built differently you know where mm. we we won't stop you know we were we were made to challenge everything and keep moving yes and i really think the other way is right to be more balanced which i believe is gen y and we're barely baby boomers we're just three years off of a gen y so it's not like not like you know we know how to use a a phone (laughs) cell phone the last question for sharon um watching Watchmen. um i didn't get to watch it until the pandemic began and the first image you see with a mask and a how did you feel just the whole concept of masks now becoming an accessory uh uh and and, and i mean how did you feel about that did that seem weird surreal like science fiction what extremely surreal as if we did the show in the future and then brought right. it out before it was like what he, you know, amazing showrunner, Damon Lindelof, he, he projected all that. It's his idea with the mask. It's his idea with the lock of the police guns in the car. And, you know, everything he thought of, it's just like he was in the future with that thinking. It's just unbelievable how, how fiction, you know, and nonfiction are almost the same. <laughs> really, it was, it was pretty freaky to see the... The, to, you know, I didn't think anything of the mask. And then when I saw everyone wearing them, I went, God, that looks familiar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Watchmen. <laughs> but before we leave, ladies, I wanted to ask you if you have any words for young costume designers, especially women uh, of color that are trying to get into this business. Um, from anything that you've learned throughout your years, anything you can share? Um. Be patient. Really learn the really learn film and television. Learn what other people do, mm-hmm. because if just if you're coming from the fashion world, you've really got to understand the concept of film and television. That just is never enough for a director. So, you know, <laughs> even if you work as a PA in different yes. parts of filmmaking, that's really a plus. But yes, you know, mm-hmm. patience. And then persistence. <laughs> and you have to have, I think you have to have, and I say this all the time, you have to have passion to do this. You have to really, to work this hard and long hours and what we have, you know, 
that's so time consuming. You have to have a passion for this because um, it takes love to do this, to love, yeah. to love this job. It takes a lot. And, um, and I just think you have a special gifting in this. There's a, there's a certain amount of people that just can float through this, you know, and they, they're calm and you have to have a calmness about, you can't react to everything. You have um, to be calm and you can't take things personally. You really have mm-hmm. to think it out because everyone, it's, it's very high tempers and you can't take it personally. And there's different moments in everybody's lives, you know, an actor's life. And they're, and they're human beings, so they're going through certain things just like we're, you know, so you may get into a dressing room, you may not, or you talk to someone and they kind of snip at you and you just let it go. You just kind of have to let it go. You know, if they're screaming or yelling at you, sure, you know, that type of thing. But you just have to learn, like, not everything's a fight. And I think that's um, not everything is a fight. And you have to let some things go. And I think that's, that's the key as well. That's good advice for life. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, because we're, I mean, we're out shopping. So we're, we're out there and we're rushing to get our, I mean, I don't know about her, but uh, Sharon, but for us, it's like we have to run out we have to come back with the fifth actress tomorrow. So we're out in the fields as well. So we're coming against a, a lot of personalities all day long. So you have to go, okay, I need that outfit. I need it in 10 minutes. Breathe, breathe. And you got to get it across town and go back to your studio for the actor to try it on in two hours because of last minute casting, right? And so that's what happens a lot in television. So you have to be able to like stay calm, stay calm. That's it for this 16th episode of Brown and Black. Thank you for Sharon and Michelle for being on the show. And if you'd like to support this podcast, please subscribe on any podcast platform and leave a review. We're now on Amazon Music Podcast Platform. Your help also allows us to be heard by many more people. You can reach us on Twitter at Brown Black Pod, on Instagram at Brown Black Podcast, and of course, on our new YouTube channel where you can check out the Sharon and Michelle interview in video form at Brown Black Podcast. See you next week for another episode of Brown and Black. Some kind of moment. Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.